0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie-Weissman, the Editor-in-Chief here at Modern Retail. This week, I'm really excited. We have Scott Tannen. He's the founder and CEO of Boland Branch, which is a bedding and linen and sleep-affiliated company that's been around for about a decade now, I'm pretty sure. I think 2014 is when you guys hit the market. The bedding space has been really hot in the DTC world for a while, and you guys have been sort of sleeper hits, uh, just in terms of how you've been growing. Um, I don't know if sleeper is the right word, but you guys have done some really interesting things. And I want to go into how you've done that. Because correct me if I'm wrong, I just read this, you guys are doing over 200 million a year in revenue. Is that correct, Scott? Yeah, that's right.
1: Right around 200. Mm-hmm.
0: That, that's wild. Um, And I want to I want to get into all of that. I want to get into your new expanding store strategy, because I know you're opening up some stores, I think specifically this month, if I'm not mistaken, but we'll get into all of that. But Scott, how are you doing? Thanks for joining.
1: I'm great. I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Absolutely. So first, want to just give a little background about yourself. Who who is Scott Tannen, and how did you get into the betting space?
1: Yeah, well, like most people from the the betting industry. Uh, I spent the prior seven or eight years of my life in the video game industry, uh, making games. So, you know, it's a natural, natural progression (laughs) of things. Um, but you know, in reality, I grew up in consumer packaged goods marketing. So, uh, started my career at Nabisco, which became Kraft Foods, getting to work on brands like Oreo and Planters Nuts and Lifesavers and, and everything in between. Um, and, and from there went over to Wrigley, uh, the, the chewing gum company where, um, I became their first head of, of digital globally. So built the, the entire digital organization for, um, for Wrigley, uh, left Wrigley, um, and started fun tank, um, which, uh, was, you know, we were, we were probably the largest developer and creator of casual online games. Um, back in the days when people played flash on the internet, um, before Steve jobs came out with that little phone device that decided to blow up the business. Uh, <laughs> but we, um, but we pivoted quickly and, and we're pretty prolific in Facebook games, uh, back in the day as well as, uh, games on the iPhone and sold the business in, um, 2010, the end of 2010. Um, so I stayed on for a few years, um, and, and was really you know searching for sort of my next venture. And I had about 50 terrible ideas. Um, one of the, the ideas, I guess, turned out not to be so terrible, which was to figure out how to democratize the, the Bedlin in space. Um, and, and here we are.
0: Got it. So what does democratize the Bedlin in space mean?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I started just like, you know, if you talk to the founders from any other of dozens of DTC companies, right, you start as a consumer. In our case, we were moving from a queen bed to a king bed, and my wife came home one day, uh, and and she's like, you know, I, I went to Bed Bath & Beyond, I went to Bloomingdale's. What's the difference between all these different products at these different price points? And I thought she was crazy and figured I could uh, solve this problem on Google in about three minutes and then go back to playing video games. Um, And, uh, and ended up staying up all night. The the first article I read was, was from the, uh, the times. And it was about why thread count doesn't mean anything.
0: Wait, can I actually, can I pause you for a second? Uh, so the person who is quoted in that very article is my great uncle, Julian Tomchin, who is the thread count king, no um, which way. is a very weird fact about me, but I know exactly what article you're talking
1: about. Well, tell him that my kids are very appreciative that they get to go to college <laughs> because I saw that article and, and saw him. But, um, but, you know, look, it, it's, it was just the first of, of a, a great number of things I learned about the textile industry, knowing nothing. And, and, you know, that being an advantage, right, when you know nothing um, and you know you know nothing, you, you have nowhere to start but but to start by learning. And, and so finding that, you know, thread count was purely a measure of fabric density had nothing to do with quality and softness and going all the way through everything from, well, Egyptian cotton and, and it's actually grown in China and, um, and so on and so forth. So, you know, in, in really simple terms. It was too difficult for the average customer, myself included at that time, to predictably get a great set of sheets. But then when you dig a little bit deeper, it was very easy to start a sheets company, incredibly easy to start a sheets company. There's other DTC brands that, I mean, I don't know if they still exist today. So many have come and gone um, because it's so easy. You don't actually have to build a real business. You can just raise some venture capital and away you go. Um, and, And what I found was it's very hard to make a better product. Uh, and, and, and I felt that if we were going to do that and my wife at, at this point was so scared, I was going to lose the house on bed linens, which I knew nothing about. Um, and she was right. We almost did a couple times, but, um, but you know, we got into this together and said, well, you know, there are things that are important to us as customers. When you, when you ask the question of where does the cotton come from, what's the livelihoods like, what are the factories like is there child labor, all of those sorts of things, you end up finding that the status quo in the industry is not very good, number one. And and number two, in a space where all consumers participate in the category but are largely uneducated, no one's asking the question. So the problems just continue to perpetuate. Uh, so we, with a little bit of a chip on our shoulder and, and frankly, the benefit of not raising venture capital and being, being in the fortunate position to be able to bootstrap this um, – Said, we're gonna we're gonna see if we can make every right decision in the process and see where that gets us. We might write a book about why the world kind of sucks, or we might end up having a company at the end of it. And and the truth of the matter is in building our own supply chain, we were able to create a much, much different feeling product and a much better feeling product at a really attractive price point for the customers and and drive the business with strong margins. Um and and you know, incredible quality, and and build our reputation from the ground up that way, while doing a whole lot of good for for those that that are responsible for making the products in the first
0: place. So, can you talk about how you built out your own supply chain and what you learned in those initial times? Because there are so many founders that you talk with, where or I've talked with, I should say, um, that I'm always I always just try to know when you're not in an industry and then you want to learn about an industry. A lot of it, a lot of it, can come down to arbitrage, which is clearly not what you're doing, but like what you're doing is trying to figure out where to source. So how did you do that? And how did you make sure it was as sustainable and ethical as you, as you said?
1: Yeah. And look, it's not mutually exclusive. There is arbitrage on any direct to consumer business. That's what it is. Um, but the question becomes, how do you create your basis and and where do you start? So, um, you know, in, in, the, in the, in the spirit of keeping your podcast from being eight and a half hours long, I'll <laughs> consolidate to, you know, a couple years of work down into a few things. And, and for us, the starting point was trying to understand what actually makes a betting product or a sheet better, like full stop, what makes it better. And, and the difference between a great product and an an average or fair product, which the world is littered with. The world does not need, did not need another bedding product, still doesn't need another bedding product. The world did need better. And and so in finding it out, you, you realize that it starts at the raw material. And while organic is a buzzword, organic also stands for a lot of things. And I'll leave sort of the the social impact aside for a second and just talk purely about the raw material. It doesn't take much to start learning about the raw material when you say, well, what does organic mean? It means that there's no chemicals and pesticides being used. But that also means that the soil remains healthier. And if we think about it as something as simple as your tomatoes in your backyard, you grow tomatoes one year and you treat the soil properly and you don't douse it with chemicals and then you grow them again the next year and they're better and then next year and they're better. And that's, that's why we pay so much for an heirloom tomato at Whole Foods right? And, and so when you think about cotton as a raw material, the same thing happens, right? You, you can skip the Monsanto genetically modified seeds and start with real heirloom seeds and create a much better raw material. And this raw material, it winds up yielding a softer, more durable, um, longer lasting, beautiful product. And so once you have the better raw material, how's it picked, right? Is it picked by hand or is it picked by machines? Machines do damage to things, right? Um, how's it ginned? What, what's the process in the gin? Then how's it spun? How's it woven? What What are the processes around cut and sew and finish? Are you engineering your own weave or are you buying it off the shelf and, and private labeling like I think every other DTC brand is doing other than us? So. What we end, wound up doing is we started with that raw material, and at each stage, we're like, okay, we found the best. Now, what do we do with it? And you have to be smart enough to know what you don't know and talk to people who do. And we would talk to either people that would say, yeah, I get what you're doing. That's going to be great, but nobody wants it. There's no consumers that want it. They don't care. They're happy to go to a big box store and get their sheets. Um, and so, you know, we wound up with something, the quality of an heirloom tomato meets a bedsheet. You know, it's, it's softer. It's longer lasting. It's pure. It's non-toxic. Um, and when someone puts it on their bed after having slept on sheets their entire life, what we found in our own focus groups, we found our own personal use early on was, holy cow, this is so much better. And, and so that was what we put together in a product and, and took the approach of, yes, we want to play the game of arbitrage and, and continue to, to grow, but, we always want word of mouth to be our strongest driver. So this is about building reputation from day one, building reputation based on quality of product and service,
0: and did that figuring out all of the nodes of quality that you needed to put into the product so that it was a superior product, did that impact the the margin profile? like how how did you like it seems like if so many things are pre-made, how were you able to make a product that fit? the right price point that you needed it to be.
1: So let me let me let me take the approach of how your typical DTC in bedding would work. Right. So um, they're going to the garment building in, in New York City in the in the in the you know garment district or the textile building, excuse me, and um, and they're working with any one of, you know, probably a dozen mills that supply 95% of the sheets and they go in and feel things on the wall and say, I'll take model number 35. Uh, and they say, no problem, We're going to attach your label and ship it to you. And if you name the DTC company, they do this, and then I can tell you what actual big retailers uh, use that product. So there's you know one that, that's located in New York City that it's just private labeling target sheets. It's all they've done from day one. And, and you know it's, it's a fine product. Um, when, when you go out to actually engineer something, you control every cost on the backside of it, right? So if I'm going to a factory and they're saying, hey, the sheet said costs $50, that's your cost of goods, you're fixed on your cost of goods there. And you have to do so much volume there to get any benefit from that. The flip side, we were going and securing the raw material directly from the cotton farmer. So we're paying them two to three times more than they end up getting through that traditional supply chain. Okay, but we're taking custody of that. So now we control the current transportation costs. There's no markups at any point throughout the manufacturing product process. And at the end of the day, we end up with a more sustainable product that everybody involved has made more money, significantly more money by making. And our cost of goods is certainly no higher and likely lower than than just about everything in the marketplace. And so by controlling your your supply chain. There's more middlemen that sit on the backside of a supply chain than sit between sort of factory and consumer. Even though when we talk about cut out the middleman, that's what we generally talk about. So when you disrupt that supply chain, you have an opportunity to build a margin profile that's really, really strong. And if you have a great product and strong word of mouth, you're not living and dying by only buying your consumers. Therefore, you know, you're living with this tiny margin and and the difference between making money and being out of business is, is, you know, one weeks of sales, right?
0: So let's talk about that word of mouth. You've brought it up a few times. Uh in 2014 when you launched what 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 were the primary levers that you were pulling and was the idea at the beginning that you were going to be online only? When did when did stores and wholesale be, get added to the mix?
1: Yeah, so uh, I'll I'll start with um building word of mouth, right? It it it's It happens slowly, um, obviously, and and you always want it to happen faster. Uh, It was great in the beginning because all my friends bought the product, but that's (laughs) not exactly going to build a business. Um, We were very fortunate that uh, our reputation and and the way in which we were operating um, got a lot of really interesting press and coverage. The Wall Street Journal wrote a two-page feature story on us about eight weeks in, and we didn't retire our waiting list for two years um, from there. And unlike a lot of DTC brands – we'd never focused exclusively on millennials, uh, and, and key urban markets. So it was interesting in the opening, you said we flew a little bit under the radar screen, all right? We've been the largest player in this space. since, since the day we've, we've and that we've clearly launched.
0: shows like where my, what my glasses I rate. Where, yeah, of, you know, course. Like-
1: <laughs> of course. I mean, I'd rather be successful than sexy. Um, and, but fortunately I'm both, uh, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, uh, but look, you know, um, so building that word of mouth, it was amazing. We had a few things happen early on. Um, you know, one of the things we've become known for is that that our sheets are. You know, it's it's one of our taglines, loved by three U.S. presidents. Um, one of our former presidents was one of our very first customers. Heard about what we were doing from a supply chain standpoint, from a sustainability and social impact standpoint, and reached out before we launched and wanted to be our first customer. Still one of our largest customers. Um, and and so. We just continued to build that strong word of mouth, really satisfied customers, and a very high repeat purchase rate. Um, from the very beginning, a third of our customers were coming back within a month or two and buying again, um, which is kind of unheard of in a category like this that's generally you know one to two purchases per household per year.
0: First, which president? I need to know.
1: So, um, you know, out of respect, we, we don't, we don't reveal it. Um, we have in the past, but I can tell you that, um, among our fans, uh, include, uh, pretty much every, uh, living president at this point. So, um,
0: I do, I do know for, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but one of your brand ambassadors is Jenna Bush. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. That's correct. <laughs> so yeah. Um, and I will say that, uh, that I was very lucky that president Clinton invited me to, to meet him, um, cause he loved the product so much. So, uh, okay. <laughs> what, what this has done, um, you know, this business has been amazing in so many ways and, and, you know th- th- they all continue to be really big fans which is exciting
0: that's awesome so talk about the the revenue mix in terms of over the last few years cuz uh did you start out online only or how, how how have you sort of grown into the the business that you are now
1: correct so for our first five years or so we were, we were completely online only. Um, and, uh, we did a little bit of experimentation with brick and mortar retail. I think in, in, in our case, again, we're always focused on staying above our skis from a profitability standpoint and from a capital standpoint. So, I plan to be in this business for a very long time. Uh, we are not on a race to nowhere to either uh, figure out how to get cash in the door, cash in my pocket, or or, or anything like that. So we try to make every decision we can with, with a long-term lens. And, and so uh, we had opened three stores uh, as COVID kind of came around and saw the digital demand just driving so far that we really felt that investing in our supply chain and investing in scalability was smart, so we took a little bit of a hold there, um, but at the same time, also just before covid bloomingdale's or excuse me Nordstrom approached us and and we were uh, one of the first DTC brands period. Uh, and certainly the first in the home category that, that Nordstrom had tapped to help sort of reboot their home business. And that's been just a tremendous partnership for us and has really helped introduce the brand to a lot of shoppers. Uh, and then last year, um, we started working with Bloomingdale's as well. So, you know, when we look across our mix, it's fairly diversified. Uh, unlike many, our digital business continues to grow, uh, while CACs are strained for a lot of people. Um, we're not seeing the pinch that a lot of folks are seeing, um, and 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 the pullback. So um, again, we're we're up very significantly year on year this year, um, top end bottom line. Um, and I think that's because we've not overextended ourselves where we're paying for rents and can't continue to fund customer acquisition and things like that.
0: Why do you think your cacs are performing so well when others aren't? Is that just because you're you, you mentioned how you know you're a thriving DTC business, but your target. You know, demographic isn't necessarily the the upwardly mobile millennial. It's it's everyone else. Does that help, or is it just well? It's, that it's everyone, fi-
1: including the upwardly mobile yeah, yeah. millennial. I think that that you know what you find when you look at the the flyover states, if you will, um, is our brand and our brand values resonate really, really well. Um, and again, this is about reputation. It's about customer service and 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 what you do on a customer basis. So we've seen you know continued growth and retention of our core customer. Um, when someone buys a and Branch product, they come back and, you know, they mostly start with sheets, but then they buy their towels and they buy their comforters and they, they continue to move through the home because they recognize that every single product we make is painstakingly engineered by us from scratch. It's significantly better than what they're used to to having. And, and, you know, as, as long as, as we continue to ensure that our product line extends with that same standard of quality, right, it's always easier to say, well, I'm just going to go buy some throw pillows from this importer. I'm going to buy this product. And we just don't. Um, we, we will never do that. And and so um, I think we've been able to build a strong enough reputation that, uh, that you know, now when you look from a brand awareness standpoint, on a national basis, we, we are the leader from a betting standpoint. Not the leader among DTCs, but we are the most recognized brand of betting in the world now.
0: Did you, given the time when you started and the growth that you saw, so many DTC brands were, they saw their growth purely reliant on digital app acquisition because it was cheaper back then and it was easier, easier to, easier to do Google, easier to do Facebook. Was that part of what played into your strategy or sort of how how has your digital marketing been and what have you done now to make it so that you're still able to grow and still have your CACs be, you know, at a good rate?
1: Yeah, so... um I'm old and old fashioned. Um, so we have the old thing called the diversified media mix. Um, and (laughs) and so I know it's shocking. Um, we actually, you know, early on, we were probably one of the very first brands that, that went heavy on audio, um, and, and did so right around the time that we launched. So, um, we were, you know, we started on, on talk radio. Howard Stern was one of our very first influencers, if you will. (laughs) Um, you know, when I found out he loved the product and we were custom making it for him, I was like, we've, you know, I bought so much dumb stuff from listening to that show over the years. He can sell sheets. Um, and and so today, if you look at our media mix, it doesn't necessarily spike. We, we spend a significant amount on digital, we spend a lot through social and, and influencer search, those sorts of things. But um, we, we still spend a lot on TV, we still spend a lot on audio. And, and so when you have that diversified mix, um, and we do most of our media buying in house, so we've built that agency house, I'm lucky that, that in a prior life I did also run an agency. So all of our creative, all of our um, media buying, everything's in house, which keeps the cost really, really efficient, right? Because I'm not paying 20 to 30% of fees on top of it uh, to other folks. And we have the ability to move money between channels really, really quickly. Again, I, I haven't committed, you know, $10 million to a digital agency that isn't going to let go of that funding without a fight, right? So we, we, we spend a lot less time arguing uh, about how to optimize and a lot more time working on optimizing that mix. And, and again, we've got a, just a really blended mix um, across the board.
0: So if it's so blended, and you're doing things like podcast, and you're doing things like TV, what is your overall strategy with attribution? Because those are so top of funnel and difficult to quantify for a lot of brands. So is it, you know, do you do you think about that differently than you do, you know, a Facebook ad? Or how, how are you thinking about that?
1: Yeah, so we look at it across a, a few things. First of all, we, we've also built a pretty sophisticated um, data team and and data, data systems in house. And, and that's been an area, again, when we think about where have we invested, rather than opening twenty doors in one shot, uh, you know, we've spent several million dollars building our data infrastructure, which I could probably productize and and sell and license to other companies, but I won't. Um, so, you know, we look at a fractional attribution model in general. So we have an understanding of um, upshot and uptick by channel um, that's just been proven over a long period of time. And we've got to go in and constantly remeasure it, retest the the thesis. Um, and 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 model it that way. We also have a, a user reported aspect of our attribution mix, right? So that gets blended in. Um, and and you know what we find is that certain 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 channels can assist others, right? So so let's use paid search as an example. I have to look at paid search as part of a TV or audio campaign because if somebody is hearing our ad, they're then going to search on a branded term. And so, I think that's where a lot of companies get into trouble: is they try to think about their channels. They don't think about it on a fractional basis; they think about it on more of an absolute basis. And so, when we think about that fractional attribution, we get into a space where we can we can maintain that profitability as well. Um, and when you maintain the profitability, you shut things down faster and can deploy more deploy more money to other places faster. Um, and, and so, and and I would say the other thing that we do from the way we look at CAC is we only. Factor our CAC against new customer growth. So we don't when when we look at repeat customer growth, that's not something that we assign dollar investments toward. Um, that that's something that we think about from an earn standpoint. Which again, that's how you can get to a point where you're drop driving serious profitability at the same time you're you're still driving really good, you know double digit growth
0: you mentioned TV are you doing both linear TV and connected or, or how I both. feel like that's a, an issue that a lot of people run into just because it's so expensive to get into linear TV
1: yeah both um we're we're you know more connected than linear candidly um and and again that that boils down to two things number one it works really really well and and the tracking um is better, but but look, there's times when linear TV makes sense, right? If you want if you want to reach a significant number of people through an NFL broadcast, that's your option, right? And and so, um, again, you just have to be really really smart about it.
0: Got it, got it. Let's go into stores because I want this is one of the the newest thing you guys are focusing on. Mm-hmm. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you mentioned right before the pandemic you were opening a few, then you took your foot off the gas with that for. Obvious reasons, Um, but now is it four stores you're opening? What what, what's what? We're opening three
1: three more. We're opening uh, in Houston in about two weeks, um, South Jersey uh, in Shrewsbury, New Jersey at the Grove uh, in uh, a a couple weeks after that, and then in Dallas. Um, So that that's what's happening now. um, But we will be opening stores consistently. Again, we we've been able, we're fortunate to have been able to build a a pretty significant reserve of capital. Um, So now we're at a place where. We're not just thinking about opening stores. We're thinking about how do we go win in these markets? Um, so when we think about Houston, we're not thinking about Houston as a store. We're thinking about Houston as a market. We're thinking about Dallas as a market. And and so um, if you look at the New York area as an example, we have a store in Short Hills. We have one in Greenwich. We'll have one in Shrewsbury. Um, thinking about how you own those markets is is how we're, we're operating. I think that the the model that a lot of DTCs did that said, oh, here's our store in Portland. We own Portland now. Here's our store in Chicago. We own Chicago. You don't get the the, the advantage of scale in the market. Um, and, and it's hard to sort of tip from an awareness and demand standpoint. So we're taking a little bit different approach with that um, and and really, really excited. Our, our three stores have been, uh, again, they've been quite profitable since the day we've opened them um, they offer you know a little bit more bespoke experience for for the end customer you know the customer that comes in that wants special services that needs something custom that needs this or needs that um, we're able to to service that really well from our stores
0: yeah so can you go a little bit deeper into the location you choose when you say it's different than other DDCs is it that you're going after a market that you you think is under, you know, underperforming or that you want to perform more? Or is it that these are just bigger metro areas that you think you can grow overall sales?
1: You always want your first dozen or so stores to really crush it, right? So what yeah. are you going to look at? You're going to look at markets where you already have really strong penetration. But let's be honest, this is not a winner take all category. So for us to think about having, you know, 30% market share, like, like I would when I was in, in the CPG world, it's not realistic. So there's plenty of opportunity for many, many brands to carve out different markets. So I'm thinking about where are we winning and where can I win bigger, right? How can I think about gaining more share? Where um, um, I'm leveraging a strength. So Greenwich is a great example. Greenwich was a market that we had had always been one of our top on a per capita basis. Um, by opening a store there, everything accelerated, um, and and you know it it helped us to not just have a presence, but be a part of that community, to be involved in their school systems, to 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 have that level of engagement, and and what we see is the loyalty uh, and the customer value growing. Tremendously there, and that's how we look at everything. So again, uh, using Houston, which which will open in a in a in a few weeks, um, it's all about picking the right location to start, the right set of locations, um, and and making sure we already have a customer that we can super serve there, uh, and then and then you know ample opportunity for them to bring their friends, refer their friends, um, and and you know start to have a bigger presence in the market.
0: Do you have a target for what you want the revenue mix to be as you open these more stores? Do You want it to be fifty percent retail, fifty percent online, or or how does wholesale even fit into this? Like, what are you seeing in terms of where you want it to be?
1: I mean, wholesale is a nice business, but it's it's you know it's relatively small in this in this category, certainly at the luxury end. Um, so it, we do see wholesale as a as as complementary to our retail mix, but because we would have say a shop and shop in um, Palm beach with at at Bloomingdale's that wouldn't preclude us from opening a store there. Um, although we have a store in Boca Raton and it, it does, you know, it does exist nicely, right? There is some, some back and forth there. Um, so let's leave wholesale aside for a second. We think about where our mix would end up being. I don't really have a a number I can throw at it. I still expect that, you know, for the, for the foreseeable future, we are going to be a 90 plus percent online business. Um, and and one of the things that we've done, even in terms of, you know, how we we have our, our, our retail teams think about the business is it's okay if they refer an online sale, right? They're they're not looked at with quotas in, in quite the same way they might have experienced when working at other retailers because we're just driving one business here. And I think I think that's the way everybody has to look at at retail relative to online. It's it's one omni channel shopper. Uh, it's not really on a channel by channel basis. And my guess is that in different markets we're going to see different behaviors, um, but it's hard to tell. I'll, I'll let you know in a year or so when we've got more data.
0: Yeah, let me know. I would love to love to hear. Um, we're we're just about running out of time, but I want to just ask about you know now that you have these new stores opening in the next few weeks. What what are your plans and goals for the rest of the year? Is it just making sure those work out? Should we expect to see more stores next year? What, what are you thinking about?
1: Oh, yes, you will see more stores. Um, we're not talking about them yet, but we, we'll see more stores Uh very soon, following these, um, and uh, and again, once we've felt that we have a retail model that's really, really working and that the customers love, um, we, we've decided uh, to to lean into that. Um, but as as you look at the rest of the year, we, we've got quite a bit of product innovation coming. Um, we just launched a sleepwear business. Uh, not long ago about a month or two ago and um, it has been an incredible success which is always a challenge right when you jump into yeah. a new category um, how does it work and it has been absolutely lights out um, so we've been we've been thrilled with that uh, we have a couple new categories coming on board which again we're entering in a really quality way um, this isn't just about commissioning something from a factory these are products that we've gone in and fundamentally re-engineered um, so some surprises coming as well uh, and 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 we're excited about it. We feel really, really good about our future.
0: I actually want to ask about the sleepwear because i w- always so interested when you have a company that does well in one area and then does something similar but very different. So, like, what are is that complementary? Do you only buy that online? Would you want like North? Do you want Nordstrom to have? Does Nordstrom sell your sleepwear, or would you want them to?
1: Not yet, uh, just because can't. I mean, they would love to, um, and <laughs> Bloomingdale's as well. But, but demand has been so incredible that we're we, we need to be able to make sure we're servicing that appropriately if we're going to go into wholesale so um down down the road it will definitely be there um you know the the, the strategic thought process there was we, we've built a reputation we, we've find out from our customers, what do you love so much about Bowling Branch? Why, why are you demonstrating loyalty? That's not been seen in the category before it's because of our fabrics and the materials and how they feel. Um, and, and something we had heard consistently from customers was I, I take your sheets and I wrap myself up in it and we're like, well, that's crazy. Why don't we just make you a product that doesn't make you look like, you know, Casper, the ghost walking around your house. Um, and so, so, you know, that was sort of the start of it, but Missy, my wife and, and co-founder, um, bless her. She never takes the easy path on anything. Um, she fundamentally went in and looked at how we're going to engineer sleepwear, how we make sure it's breathable, how we make sure it fits right. Um, in the form factor. And, and so, she absolutely nailed it. And it's, you know, again, it's a very fragmented category. There, there's a lot of sleepwear brands out there, not a lot of loyalty. Um, and, and so, uh, we've just been absolutely delighted with, with the product, how well it's worked. return rate is almost zero, uh, and, and customer satisfaction is super high. And that, that, that was the risk, right? Fit is a different sort of thing with sleepwear than, yeah. than betting. So can the, does the return rate go inside out and it totally changes your business and, and, um, customer satisfaction is probably the most. Satisfying product for customers that we make. It's it's been it's been great. So it gives us the confidence that we can. We've built a strong enough brand and enough brand equity that if we bring the same thoughtful process to manufacturing and, and the same sustainable standards, uh, that, that that the customers will take that ride with us.
0: Well, Scott, this has been a great conversation. I really appreciate you joining.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.
0: And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and head to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review and a rating. See you next week.